Our second reading is Paul's second letter to, first letter to Corinthians, chapter 3. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. It is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all the world, all life, all death, all the present, all the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby quitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring, the light, who will bring to light the, hidden, the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us and not go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish, admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're in week two of a series called Extended Family as we're looking at one of our vision and values as a church, 
to be a church that sees the need for relationships with one another, that we would view each other like aunts and uncles and grandparents and kids and cousins and not just strangers in a room who happen to attend the same church. As we think about this, we talk about as a church wanting to be the sort of place where we can gather people of different ages and backgrounds and experiences and talents and learn what it is to share life together, to have fun together, to be in each other's lives in such a way that we care for each other and depend on one another, that we learn what it is to love one another. And this is something we want not just in our church, we want this in life as well. We want deep and lasting friendships. And as we've talked about here at Christ Church Vienna, that's because we are made for relationships. God has made us to be in relationship with him and with one another, and we have this deep need to find that satisfied. But we ask a question like this, why are friendships and community and relationships so hard, so hard to maintain, so hard to develop? I think if we were to look at some imagery, some metaphors for relationships and friendships, what we desire is for our relationships to look like a symphony, like a piece of music, where each person is playing their part, and together we are creating melodies and harmonies that are just beautiful and magnificent. But the reality for most of us is that our relationships look a lot less like a symphony, and maybe more like a couple of these metaphors, a a middle school dance. There's things that naturally divide us and will never bring us together. When we do start trying to get together, it's very awkward. Each of us is not sure who's going to lead, and you end up stepping on each other's toes constantly. With some people, you're always just trying to dance around them, trying not to be hurt by them or hurt them. It's like a middle school dance. And of course, at its worst, many of us know the experience of what relationships are like when it's not like a middle school dance, but like a heavyweight brawl, like stepping into the octagon or the ring. You're constantly defending or attacking. In relationships is where our most ruthless, vile, vicious side comes out. And it's in relationships where we end up most beaten and bruised and hurt. And it's why for many of us, Many people that you'll run across, and maybe you yourself, we've decided that our version of relationships is not the dance or the battle. It's the island. I've been hurt too many times. I'm going to stop trying. Paul Simon wrote about this in his 1965 song, I Am a Rock. He poetically put it down. He said, I've built walls, a fortress steep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I'm a rock. I'm an island. Two verses later, he writes, I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I I touch no one and no one touches me. I'm a rock. I'm an island. And of course, he concludes with, you know, a rock doesn't feel any pain. An island never cries. And that's a choice we can make. We can make the choice to pull away because we've been hurt too many times, and just be our own island. Why why are relationships so hard? Why are good relationships so few and so fleeting? Well, the answer that we would point out here in our church is sin. We've said this before. It's we and the world are not as we were intended. We are broken, all of us. 
And if we're looking at relationships in particular, we might hit on a particular way that that comes out. And that might be pride and selfishness. And that's some of what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians, which is our main passage that we're preaching on every week. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to a church that was divided because of their sinfulness. And there's two particular verses here that I want to highlight that that give us an idea of where Paul sees the primary issue. In chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, he says, he writes, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and he goes on. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, he writes, That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So here's the situation. The situation is this. Several years earlier, Paul was the first missionary to the city of Corinth, a pretty major and important city in that ancient world. And he had brought people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and a church had been founded by Paul. Not long after that, Apollos, another apostle, had come along and started teaching and discipling people, and new people came to faith in Christ. And possibly after that, Cephas or Peter came along and did the same. There were many leaders who had had influence in this church. Paul, in chapter 3 and 4, gives metaphors to describe the way that their relationship should be understood. He He says one way to look at it is like a garden or a field. I did go in and plant the seeds, and Apollos came along and watered it. But ultimately, all of you, the whole garden, is God's. And then the next metaphor he uses is that of a building. He says, I... I was the architect. I mean, I drew up the blueprints. I was the first one in Corinth. But then Apollos came along and was actually the builder who put up the walls. But let's be real. The foundation is Jesus Christ, and the whole building belongs to God anyhow. He's trying to get them to put their perspective right under God. And instead, they are filled with divisions. And this is because of their cultural values. You see, if you were a Corinthian, your primary value was honor to be honored, to establish and protect your honor. And so Corinthians sought status and public recognition. And this meant they couldn't just enjoy the fact that maybe they had a special relationship with Paul or others of them had been converted and discipled by Apollos. They had to use that relationship to advance themselves. Because they saw everything as a way to get more honor, more recognition, more status. They were constantly trying to prove who was better. And so they were in a battle of who aligned themselves with who, Paul or Apollos. Paul narrows it down in the phrasing when he says, so let no one boast in men. And later on, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That's an interesting phrase that he chooses, that, that word puffed up. It, it's a f- word that is unique to Paul in the Bible. He uses it five times in Corinthians. And it's, it, it has the idea of pride, but there's another Greek word for pride that we know, hubris or something like that. But the word that he uses here is a totally different word, and it literally means being puffed up, swollen, distended and painful, like a balloon that's been overinflated. And Paul is pointing at this to say the reason for relational breakdown in the church right now, and probably in our lives, 
is an overinflated sense of self. To put it another way, we have a pride problem. Or to put it in biblical language, not from our passage here, we have a glory problem. Glory is not really used much in this passage, but several commentators talk about how it's undergirding what Paul is talking about. And the idea of glory is a very biblical understanding of God and ourselves and the challenge that we have relating to him and each other. And we have to think through the word glory. When we think of the word glory, we think of somebody who is uh, famous, who is being praised and recognized. And some of that is true in a biblical understanding of the word glory. But a better understanding of glory is what is really important. Something that is significant and lasting. And the metaphor that's behind the word glory is actually something heavy and weighty and immovable. The sort of thing that moves other things and isn't moved itself. So when I use the word glory, a a good way to understand it is the difference between me as a sophomore in high school here at Madison, when I was on the JV football team, all 120 pounds of me, and I had to go back and, and return punts in a practice. So 120-pound sophomore Johnny goes back to return a punt and is immediately hit by a 200-pound varsity linebacker. One of the two of us was more glorious than the other. I was completely knocked off my feet and flattened. My 120 pounds versus his 200 pounds of running full steam, I stood no chance. His glory moved mine. He was the glorious one. What we long for in life is glory. In the sense of we long for purpose and meaning and significance and weightiness. How do you answer the question, who am I and do I actually matter? You know, we look for this weightiness, this glory in the things we do or how we think of ourselves. And we tend to seek our glory, our significance in something or someone. Career success, being intelligent or attractive, having a family, being liked by people. We look for it in everything we possibly can instead of where we should be looking for it, in God. And our need for glory affects our relationships. That's some of what Paul is getting at. Think about it. If we're constantly trying to establish ourselves, establish our significance, determine how weighty we are in this world, then we're going to be constantly comparing ourselves with other people. We're constantly competing with others to prove that we matter. But ultimately, we're just self-focused and self-serving. But to the extent that we're seeking our glory in ourselves or in the things we do, we end up viewing others as a commodity. They're a source of giving me meaning or as a threat. They're competition for the worth that I'm after. And that's why Paul's imagery of being puffed up is so perfect. You see, our natural glory need state, our natural hunger for glory in the things we put it in is much like a puffed up balloon or in Paul's words, an overinflated balloon. 
You know, whatever it is that we turn to as our source of meaning, we tend to give too much value to. We overinflate career or our athleticism or being liked. <laughs> to us, financial security or winning or whatever it is is really the most important thing and we know it. But it's like a balloon that's filled with air. It's empty. It can't actually meet our needs. There's a great little book on this that's actually a sermon that was preached and then written on by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Sarah stumbled on this a couple of years ago, and I've read this three or four times. On Friday night, I remembered that this very little book was actually about this passage of Scripture. And I ended up reading through it. And Keller, in one point, is talking and paraphrasing Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher. And in his paraphrase, he's talking about spiritual pride, which is another way of talking about our pursuit of glory on our own. And he writes this, Keller does. He says, spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. Kierkegaard says that the normal human ego is built on something besides God. It searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, and a sense of purpose, and builds on that. And of course, as we are often reminded, if you try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it's going to be too small. We're puffed up. We're trying to be full, but we're not satisfied because the things we're seeking to give us glory cannot fill the void. And ultimately, we're also not just too inflated, we're too lightweight. If the idea behind glory is to be weighty, most of what we put our stock in is far too lightweight. Our sources of glory cannot give us significance or meaning, or at least it can't give us lasting significance or meaning. It's not weighty enough. And so what we end up finding is that we're constantly blown around. Either we're struggling and failing and knocked off our feet and deflated, or we're always comparing ourselves with other people. You see, pride, and whatever we put our pride in, always wants to compare. It's always trying to be better than. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity put it this way, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the, other, than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. What is it that you put your weight in? Where do you find your significance? And what happens when somebody who is more talented or more successful or better looking or more well-liked enters the room? We lose our sense of self. We're simply blown off the stage. We lose ourselves. We're overinflated too lightweight, and quite frankly, we're ready to pop. You know, for most of us, our sense of self is too fragile. When we fail 
in whatever it is we put all of our eggs in, when we fall short of our standards, it's like our balloon is burst and we feel awful about ourselves. And even when we're succeeding, we're constantly fearful or anxious that pretty soon we're gonna get popped. Pretty soon we're gonna fall short. Pretty soon it's gonna all deflate. And if someone better than us enters the room, they deflate us. Don't worry, I'm not going to pop it. (laughs) Are you a puffed up balloon? Do you have a glory problem? When I'm trying to think about where I place my glory wrongly, I ask these sorts of questions. What makes me most defensive, needing to prove myself in what areas of my life? What brings out my competitive and vicious side? And why is it that I can be so happy one moment and so deflated the next? What is it that I'm trying to hold on to? What is it that I lose that's so important to me? You know, we are always comparing, always competing, always needing to prove, always needing to defend. You see, our selfishness and our pride and pursuit of glory on our own and on our own terms, it ruins relationships. Because you are a competitor, somebody I'm comparing, somebody that's going to judge me, somebody I need to judge, somebody I'm fighting with, somebody I'm defending against. So what do we do? Well, Paul gives us a little bit of a hint here. He says that we need to be reoriented towards God. In chapter 4, verse 7, he writes, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's saying, look, everything that really matters has been given to you by God. Salvation is a gift from God. What you really need is, is that right relationship with God, and it's given from you. You didn't earn it. You didn't get it because you're Jewish or you're Greek, you're smart or you're not smart. You don't enter salvation because you're prettier than everyone else or better at financial dealings than everyone else or better at starting a business than everyone else. You get it because of Jesus Christ. It puts us on equal ground. Everything we have that really matters is given to us by God. So why are you going around comparing and competing? And as if to remind them there in verse 23, he says, everything you have, everything you really need is yours in Christ. You are Christ. You belong to God. You aren't your own, and you're not meant to find your significance on your own. God alone has the weightiness and lasting significance to anchor us. And when God is primary, everything else is going to be rightly oriented. It's like a compass needle finally finding magnetic north. You can maybe finally get your way in this world when God is rightly placed in your life. And we settle the glory issue by going to God, finding our worth and significance in him. And this is exactly what Paul did. You see, Paul used to seek after his own honor and glory But when he met Jesus Christ, it got completely thrown out. Paul had settled the God and glory issue himself. And that's why he's able to write in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, that I don't worry about anyone judging me. He writes, 
But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against me, myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I mean, I am a sinner. But listen, it is the Lord who judges me. Think about what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, I don't need your approval, but I also don't need my approval. I'm not worried about your view of me and how I measure up, nor am I setting my own standard and worried about how I measure up to myself. You see, the verdict is in. Though I am a sinner, I have been acquitted. God approves of me. Paul's significance and self-worth are not tied to their view of him, nor even his own view of himself, but God's view of him. That's a totally different place to be and live. He's found all his justification in God through faith in Jesus Christ. So now he can live for God's glory and not his own. Now he no longer needs to compete or compare or measure up. So let's think about this in our own lives. Let's think about this using an example of how it might play out, how we tend to falsely play it out, and how we should really play it out. Here's the example. If your glory, your sense of significance and worth, is, let's say, in your looks and appearance, how do you feel when a big party is coming up that everyone you know is going to be at? When, when, you're, when that party is approaching, if looks and appearance are your primary source of significance, then you're going to be stressed out. Stressed about what you're going to wear. You probably need to buy something new. You want to look good that night. You're anxious to impress. You have a reputation to keep up. What will people say? Will they notice me? Or, or what you'll do is you'll downplay the whole thing. Act like you don't care intentionally not go out and get your hair done or buy something new. That way, no one can judge you because, I mean, you're not actually trying. Oh, this old thing? I mean, I didn't even try. Oh, thank you. I do look good. Thanks. I mean, do you see that either way, whether we're stressing and going out and buying stuff or we're trying to downplay it, either way, we're probably obsessed with our looks and appearance. And every other person who might be there is a source of comparison or somebody I'm trying to draw my value from? What if instead we could go to the party, actually enjoy dressing up and looking our best, but not worry about measuring up, not worry about other people's view of ourselves or even our own view of ourselves? Now, you can probably do this if your worth and significance and glory are not in your looks and appearance. But what we tend to do is mock one thing and put our strength, our hope, our identity in something else. So maybe it's not looks and appearance for you. Instead, let's say you're in middle school or high school, and it's school success, academic achievement, right? If that's where you find your significance and your meaning, you may not get stressed out about what you're going to wear or how you're going to look going to homecoming, but essays and AP courses and college entrance applications, and how others did on the exam, and your class rank, these will be your outfit crisis. Something is always going to be our outfit crisis. Only, 
Only when God alone is our source of meaning, our source of worth, our source of significance, can we enjoy the party or working hard in school or whatever without fear of failure or a need to measure up, without viewing others as a source of self-worth or as a threat to my glory. You know, as I was reflecting on these passages, my mind went back to what we looked at two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we were ending our series on being gospel-driven people, and we looked at Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is this passage where Paul is trying to call the Philippians to love one another, to unity. It's very similar to what we're talking about this morning. And I, I missed this two weeks ago, but here's, here's what Paul says. He says, I want you to be sacrificial and humble and love one another and view others higher than yourselves. And he points to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who humbled himself and died for us. And that gospel transformation is how we can begin to love each other this way. And it's also the example, be like Jesus who humbled himself and died on the cross for us. But what I missed was the very end of the whole passage where Paul talks about the glory of Jesus. And he writes, one day, one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, one day, we will not have any more division. We will not have any more divorce or war or battle or hiding or islands or trying to dance around each other or trying to punch each other or trying to protect ourselves because one day we're all going to be flat on our faces before the Lord. That will be the great equalizer. That will settle the question of who's more glorious. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, as he says to us, those who are in Christ have figured it out. We've already bowed the knee of our heart. The only way, the only way to lasting relational wholeness is to bend the knee, to settle the glory issue. And there's only one who is worthy of glory and praise. Let's pray. God, if we take the time to think about it, we are overinflated, often empty, rattling around, trying to find our place in this world, seeking meaning and significance, even in good things like family or friendships or work. But these things cannot fill. They cannot satisfy lastingly. Only you can. Only you are worthy. Only you are glorious. Give us the courage and the willingness to bend the knee of our heart for the one who is Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Oh, creatures of-